They say America is dead, but there's a lot of people lying. Here's a page written from the book called The Great Reset by Klaus Schwab, who is the founder and executive of the World Economic Forum. Pay close attention. Quote, euthanasia for the terminally ill and the aged shall be compulsory. No cities shall be larger than a predetermined number, as described in the work of Calgary. Essential workers will be moved to other cities if the one they are in becomes overpopulated. Other non-essential workers will be chosen at random and sent to underpopulated cities to fill quotas. At least 4 billion useless eaters shall be eliminated by the year 2050 by means of limited wars, organized epidemics of fatal rapid-acting diseases and starvation. Energy, food, and water shall be kept at subsistence levels for the non-elite, starting with the white populations of Western Europe and Northern Canada. Western Europe and East and the United States will be disseminated more rapidly than on other continents until the world's population reaches a manageable level of 1 billion, of which 500 million will consist of Chinese and Japanese races. These are selected because they are people who have been regimented for centuries and who are accustomed to obeying authority without question. From time to time, there shall be artificially contrived food and water shortages and medical care to remind the masses that their very existence depends on the goodwill of the Committee of 300, unquote. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Around the Campfire with Kate, where we try to get out as much survival information as we can so that you, the listener, can glean information, put into practice, and when the time comes, to survive and stay alive. The truth about COVID? Are we tired of listening to the bullcrap that is shoved down our throats on a moment-by-moment basis? This is the position that the powers that be want us in. Let us not be weary in well-doing. Stand fast and buckle up, because we're all in for a bumpy ride. It is not about COVID. It's never been about COVID. It's always been about power. They played on individuals' despotic need to leave a legacy. They played on corporations' unbridled greed for profit. They played on the population's fear of the unknown to contrive a means of taking your freedom away. It did not work on everyone, but it worked on enough. Where once Americans prided themselves on independence, liberty, and freedom of thought, the government has the support of the majority of the country in making each of those criminal offenses. The collective is now more important in the United States, disguised as the needs of public health. Where else is the collective of the highest concern? In communist countries. For this vague idea to be protective, it requires that the government hold more power than the individual citizens, which is antithetical to the American experiment. Those who are on the New York Times mailing list will have received an article this morning titled, Vaccine mandates are controversial. They're also an effective way to save lives. 
The first example given within the body of the article says that the Houston Methodist Hospital system had an 85% vaccination rate before they mandated the vaccine for its employees. Given that 85% is significantly, significantly higher than any estimates of what is required for herd immunity. And it begs the question, why would blackmailing people with their livelihoods be a good thing? Just two years ago, I was in a comparative politics class at a state college, and as a teacher explained the reality of living in China under their social credit system, the students were horrified that something that, like that could exist. And several of them compared it to an episode of the popular Netflix show Black Mirror, which shows a similar reality. And now, college students are among the most adamant about establishing vaccine passports, mandating vaccines, and following the playbook of pandemic fighting that China gave to the West. And whether or not a federal vaccine passport is established within the United States is irrelevant unless we beat the COVID dogma. Enough private companies and blue states will require proof of vaccination. Freedom will be over as we know it. And you know what? This country is almost there. The world is almost there. Italy has mandated vaccine passports, as has France and the United Kingdom is on the verge of passing similar requirements. And this is just another step in the march to the global dominance of freedom-loving people. In a piece titled, Vaccine Passports, the Global Dominance of Freedom-Loving People. I'm sorry, I missed that one up. In a piece titled, Vaccine Passports Have to Be Consistent So All Countries Can Recognize Them, Experts Say. In the Tech Republic, Executive Director of the cybersecurity firm Okta said, quote, Somebody coming from Germany and flying to, I don't know, say Israel, Israel needs to be able to look at the possible and go. I understand what this means. I'm going to use it. But the problem we've got is this. Everyone has come up with their own different solutions. And while many of these solutions are excellent, I mean, Israel in particular has an excellent solution in place. Europe has a solution that covers all the European member countries, and that's great. They're not joined up. And this means they're sort of concerned about trust and understanding, unquote. The same pattern continues. Each individual country begins doing certain things which appear questionable, but at least nationalistic, and then it becomes a global agenda. There is no better example of this than the Build Back Better slogan that was repeated ad nauseum. Joe Biden had it behind him or every speech. Justin Trudeau had it on his lectern for press conferences. Boris Johnson made frequent use of it during his public addresses. What exactly does this mean, though? The World Economic Forum, founded by Klaus Schwab, has an entire plan on its website titled, Now is the Time for a Great Reset. If you read it, it mirrors the same sentiments as the slogans, Build Back Better. Quote, To achieve a better outcome, the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies, from education to social contracts and working conditions. 
We must build entirely new foundations for our economic and social systems. Every country, from the United States to China, must participate, and every industry, from oil and gas to tech, must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. Clearly, the will to build a better society does exist. We must use it to secure the great reset that we so badly need. That will require stronger and more effective governments, though this does not imply an ideological push for bigger ones, and it will demand private sector engagement every step of the way. Unquote. COVID has been an invaluable asset to the process of pushing through Schwab's reset, which has given them precisely unimaginable control over people, vertical consolidations of wealth, and international cooperation between governments. The mandatory vaccination and vaccine passport fights carry far more weight than just its immediate policy implication. Boldly, autonomy will be dead. Excuse me, bodily autonomy will be dead. Forced vaccinations will begin and have begun. Those who refuse will be jailed along with the January 6th protesters and beaten by the guards. The real bad result will be that those seeking to implement the Great Reset will know that there is not a population on earth with the strength of will to resist. There are some waking up to this reality. An article in the Telegraph on Wednesday said that the proposed vaccine passport policy is a conspiracy against freedom. The only question is whether or not it is too late. Those same conditions under the Chinese Communist Party, which horrified the naive comparative politics class, will be implemented around the world. Americans will be unable to buy groceries without forfeiting control of which experimental drugs the government injects you with, all while letting millions of legal immigrants across the southern border who have proven to carry tuberculosis, COVID, and other pathogens. And the truth is, your government hates you. They've used COVID as a cover to manipulate everyone into handing over their freedoms. But it was never about COVID. The pinnacle of survival is often depicted as the rugged bushcrafter extraordinary, wearing a coonskin cap and scratching sparks out of twigs deep within some cold, howling wilderness. While seemingly romantic, it has little to do with the kind of preparedness that will support families and communities through challenging times. Real life dictates a different lifestyle catering to a very real palette of needs. People have families and jobs. They have custody arrangements, wanting elders, and imminent medical issues. We need to learn to survive now if you have not already learned. It's okay to practice preparedness in suburbia. Not only is it okay, if you cannot fully abandon civilization for the boonies, it would behoove you to be a suburban prepper. Idealism can be paralyzing for so many people. People wait to garden because they want to move on to a 100-acre wooded paradise, or they put off learning medical skills because they just feel too busy. If what you can manage is a third of an acre or one acre on the edge of town, use it. 
there's a steep learning curve to the food production side of independence, and you learn by doing. Only one-third of an acre or one or two acres. It is not a deal-breaker. You can get a lot done on that amount of land. A suburban homestead of a third acre can be filled with raised beds, fruit bushes and trees, and laying hens. Laying hens, compost, and raised garden beds are powerful trifecta for smaller spaces. Increase that parcel size to an acre. And a greenhouse, row crops, goats for meat and milk. These are possible additions. That is, if you're not subject to HOA regulations barring such things. And it's true that living closer to town may not be as ideal regarding security issues that come with being in a more densely populated area. But a lot of people want to live out in the country with a huge amount of land because they think they need a huge amount of land. I have a news flash for you. You do not need that much land to just grow your own food. People with 20, 40, 160 acres either do not use most of that land or they're farming the property for profit. That much land is excessive if you are aiming to produce only for your own needs. Both situations have their pros and cons. In the sticks, you cannot get takeout delivered to your door. Dirt and gravel roads aren't as charming as they look. Larger properties require more active security measures. Rural areas are more removed from unique threats like civil unrest and tyranny. And more conventional locations are closer to medical care and employment opportunities. On the edge of town, most properties are on city water and drilling a well is not a likely option. In most of those areas, certain livestock like roosters and pigs are out of the question due to noise complaints and sanitation concerns. There is no clear line between the two options. Both are workable, but there is one choice that is not acceptable. Sitting on your laurels, waiting for someday to come. Someday is today. Do whatever you can do, wherever you are right now. And there's some things to think about, some things that can kill you like food and water. Some people fear zombies. Some people fear nuclear war. But few people stop to think about how the most mundane things in life can be deadly. Excessive heat or cold and particular bacteria costs people their lives every day. Even water can kill you. Too much water and you will die. Too little and you will die. Untreated water? Yep. You could die. The same goes for food. So let's talk about that. How much water do you really need? Well, you need at least one ounce of water for every two pounds of body weight. If you are working hard, you'll need more than that. It's a good idea to have a minimum of five liters carrying capacity in your bug out bag and three liters in your day pack. At home, you should ideally have three gallons per person per day. This sh that, that includes water for cooking, cleaning, sponge bathing, and hydration. 
if you just did the math and are wondering where on earth you're going to keep all that water, consider one of the preparedness favorites. Cleaned out IBC totes. Ever hear of Giardia? Cholera? You'll need to treat your water to avoid those and other nasties. There are multiple options for filtering water with dirt and other debris. Sock, bandana, t-shirt, coffee filter. Small things like that will do. Keep a metal container in your kit for boiling that water to kill the pathogens. Water purification tablets are highly recommended. They are lightweight, small, and very convenient. And also, consider additional water filtration like the Sawyer Mini and options from Mountain Research. You actually need to know how to find water. Nothing beats experience, but know the basics. Water flows downhill. Creek beds seep. Certain plants like sycamore trees indicate water below the ground or nearby. Find where the water is between work and home. Home and your bug out location, and so on. Plan now, because hope is not a strategy. Treat every water source as though it's the last water you're going to find, because it may be. Do not walk past anything just because you have water in your pack. And how much food do you really need? In your bug bag, bug out bait, in your bug out bag, you need two pounds per day without foraging. At your house, keep one year's food supply for everyone who's going to be there. And yeah, that's a lot of food. It's also a lot of security. It means your family will not go hungry if you lose your job or if the trucks stop running to your local grocery store. In addition to storage, you should ideally be producing food of your own. Plant a garden and learn how to save your seeds. Have two years' worth of garden seeds ready to go. Keep your animals, if possible, to create a closed-loop system and to greatly supplement your calories. Food production can also include foraging and hunting skills. Remember that the skills to process that food is just as important. The last thing you want to do is consume something unfit to eat or fail to properly process a kill. Consider, consider storing a tub of multivitamins to round out your nutritional needs and keep your body functioning as well as it can be during hard times. Anything not kept in mylar with oxygen absorbers, rotate the supply to prevent expiration, spoilage, or nutrient reduction. Remember to store things for flavor, salt, spices, a variety of things. And salt is a key food preserver, so store a lot of that. Anything can kill you. Even the most basic things like food and water. But they do not have to. Now you know what to do to survive. The question is, will you actually do it? Gathering your weather intel. Spring usually brings severe weather in many parts of the country and sometimes with very little notice. I think most of us would agree that tornadoes are one of the worst in terms of little or no notice. 
In contrast, hurricanes or blizzards come with at least several days' notice. In normal situations, we all probably have at least one app on our phone to track weather. We probably have our phones set to give us news and weather alerts. And as I've mentioned before in previous shows, you should have radios for communication. Most VHF radios like Baofeng's should have the ability to monitor the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, and National Weather Service, NWS, weather radio frequencies. The NOAA weather broadcasts use seven frequencies between 162.400 to 162.550, and then they vary by location. It is important to use the correct frequency for your area because NOAA sends traffic messages and alerts based on geographical areas using specific area managing encoding, or called SAME. Each county or municipal area has a specific code that can be entered into a radio. It will then alert to the county and weather type based on the code. The same system is part of the emergency alert system. And there are event codes for weather events and also evacuations, civil emergency, hazardous materials, nuclear plant warnings, and so on. There's a lot of options for weather radios, including some that have solar power, hand cranks, connections for USB power, charging of devices. Some are just weather radios, and others can also pick up local AM and FM radio stations. Local stations would rebroadcast the alerts before the days of the Internet based radio and TV. While they still do, a large number of people who utilize Internet-based services may not receive the alerts. And it's important to have other means to receive these alerts. Have a weather radio in your vehicle when traveling so you are not relying on the local stations. Most municipalities have a siren system if you live close enough to a town to hear it. These are usually only activated for a warning and not the watches. Another source of notification is amateur radio. Some ham repeaters are programmed to rebroadcast the watches and the alerts. Other areas have Skywarn or weather nets. Skywarn is a program of the NWS to train weather observers. Usually most NWS offices offer a number of courses prior to severe weather season. In addition to in-person classes, they offer a basic online class. Many Skywarn observers are also ham radio operators, and many areas will conduct a weather or Skywarn net on a local repeater to coordinate messages to the local NWS office. Additionally, most NWS offices have ham radio stations. In my area, there's a daily weather net year-round with people reporting their local weather, which is then forwarded to the local NWS office. And know your area. You should educate yourself on weather patterns. Peak tornado seasons is April to June, although tornadoes have occurred outside that time. The United States averages 1,225 tornadoes each year, with 55% occurring between April through June. The more severe ones also tend to occur during this time. 
tornadoes are not the only weather hazards as there's severe thunderstorms, hail, high winds, etc. that can all cause severe damage. Along the coastlines, hurricanes are a hazard. While they bring high winds, it's usually the surging water that kills more people. A Skywarn class will give you some basic understanding of weather and what to look for in changing patterns. You can enhance your ability to monitor it with a weather station. Over the years, a number of weather stations have developed on the market for amateur weather spotters. These can be as simple as clock with a remote that's placed outside to give you temperature and also indicates a change in the barometer pressure with different symbols. Other stations include complete home stations, rain and wind gauges, wind speed and direction, and barometric pressure. There are also lightning detectors, which are great when doing act outdoor activities. Handheld weather monitors are perfect when in the field, hiking, or otherwise on the move. These vary from a simple wind and temperature gauge to devices that have humidity sensors, barometric, altitude, and air density sensors. Those who do long-range shooting probably have one of these already. And I personally have a basic Kestrel station as well as a more advanced XTEC 45158 station as an upgrade. I highly recommend that you take a Skywarn course and learn the weather patterns in your area. Your local NWS has probably scheduled their classes for the year. If you cannot find or get into a local one, then at least take the online class. You should also check your local ham nets and clubs to see which ones run a weather net and or provide alerts on their repeaters. The easiest way to find them is to search repeater book for your state. You'll find an index for weather nets and Skywarn. You can still listen in without a ham license, but I strongly urge you to get your license. I also strongly suggest getting a weather alert radio to carry with you. Once programmed with the SAME code for your area, it will remain silent until an alert is received. And this is handy as it can be set up to alert you at night. You should also identify suitable space in your home and workplace that can be used as a tornado shelter. Be sure to have your family practice before tornado season starts. Now, patrol, recon, and scouting after the SHTF. While accurate intelligence can help survivors make effective decisions, you will not see the news in the rule of threes or any other list of survival priorities. Lack of news does not directly kill survivors. Understand what information is relevant to the survival of your group and what is just nice to know. Patience and restraint are warranted in the post-SHTF intelligence gathering efforts. Patrolling can be done on foot, from vehicles, watercraft, or even from the air if you have the resources. Patrolling from vehicles can cover a large area and provide mobility. We like to use drones. It's a platform for optics, sensors, and all kinds of other goodies. The drawback being is if you're in a vehicle, it's high profile. Easily spotted, easy to track, and easy to ambush if the vehicle primarily operates on roads and other lines of drift. 
Vehicles also create obstacles to speaking with locals and some other types of intelligence gathering. So start with a foot patrol. It lays a foundation for all other methods of patrolling. Get out and survey nearby areas. Record your observations and create detailed maps. Get to know the areas around your residence, your work, your properties, and other areas that you spend time at. Also get to know the people who live in the pre-SHTF areas. Establish a baseline beforehand so you do not miss important observations immediately before the SHTF. And you'll have little opportunity for a baseline of comparison post-SHTF. Realize that although survivalists often refer to SHTF as an event and catastrophes, they're sometimes triggered by specific events, and it's more often a process. Most people are indecisive and vulnerable to the normalcy bias. According to Dr. John Leach, the author of Survival Psychology, as much as 80% of survivors freeze as they succumb to analysis paralysis. The breakdown of society is typically a process, not an event. Noticing changes early on may give you valuable time to gather loved ones and get off the X. It'll let you gather last-minute supplies, make other life-saving preparations, or execute a plan of action. Some types of patrols, as defined in United States military doctrine, have more relevance than others to post-SHTF survival. This is important to keep in mind. While there are several types of patrols, they generally fall into two categories, combat patrols and reconnaissance patrols. The combat patrol under United States military doctrine employ more manpower than most survival groups have in their, at their disposal. The military has a great deal more infrastructure backing their patrols than survival groups do. There's still value in survivalists' training for combat patrols and raids, though. Keep in mind that conventional military action against modern military forces by a survivalist group would result in high casualty rates and would likely mean the end of your group. A lot of conditions would have to be met to justify a survival group running combat patrols. If you're part of a group that can field a platoon or company-sized force and call in indirect fire, rapid reaction forces, armor, air evac, that's if they get in trouble, and hospitals to treat the wounded, then feel free to engage. But at that point, you've become the institution and probably do not need to be reading articles or listening to programs like this about patrolling. If survivalists go to war post-SHTF, they should concentrate on high-leverage guerrilla warfare. Clearing patrols are typically done to secure an area. They have more use for survivalist groups than offensive combat patrols. A static patrol is not what most folks would imagine when they think of a patrol, but it is useful to survivalists for gathering intelligence and protecting camps or fixed sites. Static patrol establishes an observation post, or OP. A good OP should be positioned where it can observe the sector it is responsible for watching, provide good cover and concealment. It should also cover the routes to and from the OP. The recon reconnaissance patrol also has value to the survivalist. 
make sure the tactics are adapted to the needs and objectives of the survivalist as opposed to those of the military. The primary objective of the recon patrol is to gather information. Because of this objective, recon patrols are smaller in size than combat and clearing patrols. The key elements of patrolling are planning, small unit tactics, field craft, movement, recon, tracking, and debriefing. And maps are an important part of your emergency planning. And they're useful whether you patrol or not. They're vital for planning your patrols. Mapping sites and software are a huge help in creating a detailed map of your neighborhood and surrounding areas. And I would take the app on your phone or on your laptop and I would print off the map of your neighborhood. This can be done on any budget and even without spending any money. Counties keep records of property lines and landowners, which is very helpful in most areas. This is particularly helpful in rural, semi-rural, and suburban areas. It is used. It used to be that survivalists would put the USGS topographical map on the wall that contained their homestead and then fold the borders in on the bordering maps. This meant retreats had up to nine maps on a board section of wall just to display the immediately surrounding area. And today, most universities can custom print a map centered on whatever point you like. It will be on water-resistant paper and can apply whatever layers of data you like very inexpensively. The last one I purchased ran about six bucks. Six bucks each, I should say, for the maps on about like a three by five. There will be resources should you need to start over post SHTF or are caught without maps for some reason. Check out homeowners associations, hotels, churches, phone books, ranger stations, and government offices. A sand table is a three-dimensional model of a key portion of a battlefield. It is helpful for planning patrols, ambushes, operations. It's also an effective tool for briefings and debriefings. Sand tables can be improvised as needed in the field using dirt, rocks, sticks, and labels. Destroy them when, no longer, when they are no longer needed. Sand tables at fixed sites can be somewhat more elaborate as they'll be used over and over. And reconnaissance should be focused on life-saving and mission-critical information for group survival. Recon patrols or scouting missions typically rely on stealth and avoid contact with potential enemies. Information can be gathered using the five senses, optics, sensors, by talking to people when appropriate, and by tracking. In urban areas, it's often easier to hide in plain sight using covert camouflage by looking like everybody else. Do not stand out and try to blend into the, in with the crowd. In wild areas, overt camouflage is used to blend in with the terrain instead of the populace. And while traveling, it is necessary to transition between overt and covert camouflage. Clothing and equipment should be purchased with transition in mind. Reversible clothing and layered clothing are especially useful for transitioning between the two environments, such as in a get-home and bug-out scenarios. 
I carry a large letter-sized notebook for emergency planning and smaller four-by-six notebook for in the field along with pens. It's so useful that I brought a wire-o binding machine to create my own. I use it for all kinds of things, but it's crucial for recon. Here's some of the most crucial notes. Emergency planning, recon notes, checklists, range cards, sector sketches, ballistics and ranging tables, land navigation, footprint cards for tracking, reference material, communications plan, patient treatment forms, mash casualty triage, training firearm and adventure journal notes, and forms. Direction sampling searches are a key tool for foraging and identifying resources. You could think of them as recon patrols adapted to survival. They're useful in both wild and built environments. Decide which direction is most likely to yield the resources based on what you know. Reconnoiter that direction. Foraging resources, fishing, setting traps, or hunting as you go. Walk as far as is reasonable and return to camp. The next time you take a direction sample, go a different way. Eventually, you will complete a systematic survey of the lands around your camp or your fixed site. This is useful in determining when an area has been tapped of resources and when it may be necessary to move your camp to survive. Sitting, sleeping, and starving until you get picked up is only possible on survival TV. There is little sense in staying in an area that has been overforaged, foraged, hunted out, overfished, and trapped out. For this reason, most hunter-gatherers are migratory to some extent. At least try to have winter and summer camps, fishing camps, hunting camps, and so on. The objectives of scouting are generally to find the enemy or observe terrain to find a path through it. Scouting parties are typically small, about a squad size or two-man scouting teams. The United States Marine Corps fields scout and snipers, and many services employ special forces. There's a great deal of overlap between the two roles, so the designation of scout sniper is a logical one. Scouting has utility for the survivalist both with fixed sites and while growing. The primary skills for scouts are like land navigation, range estimation, field craft, tracking and counter-tracking, camouflage, route selection, night vision, reconnaissance, and patrolling. Scouting on the trail and for nomadic or displaced groups is where we depart from modern military strategy and must look to primitive strategy. Cultures all over the planet have dealt with the problem of providing security. They also scouted routes for the larger traveling groups of displaced persons, nomadic tribes, migrants, and immigrants all throughout history. The problems faced under these circumstances cannot be resolved by paging through military manuals. Modern militaries have different goals, resources, structure, and force makeup. The only military march in United States history that comes anywhere close would be the first leg of the march made by the Mormon Battalion in 1846. 
to say that the strongest march in the history of the United States military was an anomaly would be an understatement. Most survivalists say that they'll never be refugees or displaced persons in, in military speak. Most survivalists can envision a circumstance where they might be compelled to bug out on foot. They'll have a lot in common with a tribe of Native Americans or a handcart company of pioneers crossing the plains in the 1800s. They likely will not have as much in common with an infantry squad, which is what most model their groups after. None of these groups accomplished what they did using the modern infantry squad as a model. Like survival groups, they did not have six guys in the logistics tail for every guy at the tip of the spear. They could not have duplicated modern military logistics infrastructure in any meaningful way. Each of these groups understood something many survivalists do not, and they compensated for it. The reality is that if you put a hundred-plus-pound pack on a guy who works a desk job, his wife, 2.5 kids, grandma, and a golden retriever, they will not make it to the end of the block, much less a faraway bug-out property. All the groups mentioned employed a simple strategy to deal with the problems they faced. They divided their groups into a scout security element and a slower-moving supply chain. The scout security element could move fast and light while the supply train moved slower with wagons, animals, the elderly, heavy gear, and so on. The scout security element also scouted ahead and cleared the way for the supply train. If the scout security element encountered the enemy, they went around or caused a distraction to lead them away from the supply train. They left trails and trail signs to communicate with the main body, which they in turn obliterated. And some groups also stepped into the footprints of the person ahead of them on the trail to disguise their numbers. Understand the difference between life-saving intelligence and nice-to-know information that simply feeds the habits of the addicted. There is no sense in risking lives for the latter. Before the SHTF, get out in your neighborhood and pound the pavement to establish a baseline. And do it now. Once you have your baseline, a field guide is a key tool for recon. It should focus on life-saving and mission-critical information that is difficult to remember. Do not only study military strategy, as you'll have more in common with groups like the Pioneers. Look at the many cultures that divide into faster scout security and slower supply elements. Then the scouts should choose and clear the path for the slower movers. My looks come from the European side of my ancestry, so I stand out like a sore thumb in South America. I look like a Viking walking through a sea of tan, dark-haired dark Brazilians. There probably wouldn't be any more stairs than if I was armored up and wearing hairy britches like old Ragnar Lothbrook, who happens to be an ancestor of many people. In a city near... Sorry, in a city center in Brazil where a bunch of buses passed by, I felt like fewer people would stare at me if I were an extraterrestrial instead. Having some time to kill, waiting for a ride, I was mulling over my blending problem. We were not 
in a safe area, and this was feeling like a countdown to a robbery or lightning kidnapping. So I started experimenting. I started counting the percentage of faces staring at me. Then I started making changes to see if they made a difference. Having a cash with me wasn't helping. That helped a, a little when you can set your cash aside. My most no noticeable feature was my hair. So I dug up a, ca a cap out of my bag and put it on along with sunglasses. Then I backed off the curb, folded my arms, and leaned on a low fence. Stairs dropped from approximately 70% down to 20%. I did not imagine it would make that much of a difference. People notice movement, bright colors, contrast, beautiful women, wealth, foreigners, eye contact, and anything threatening or suspicious. Even if these things are only contextual, purchase a bunch of related items, give them a peek at the trunk of your car or the contents of your pack, and they will have an idea of what you're doing. Observe your surroundings and yourself, then eliminate or conceal the differences. This may require some clothing and accessories like hoodies, hats, sunglasses, gloves, stuff like that. Just make sure they blend with the baseline of your environment. Need to cover up your face? More and more folks are wearing masks when sick or when dust or con contagions abound. And right now with COVID hitting, masks are in. This may fit in an emergency and people may not approach if they suspect that you're sick. The drawback is that they also may not let you pass through any type of control point. It's more normal in some, some places than others, so use judgment and have plausible deniability. Be confident and alert and aware and avoid direct con eye contact and confrontation. Keep your opinions to yourself. Speak and respond when necessary, but interacting with others attracts attention. Treat others with respect and be courteous but do not appear to, to take an interest in them. Anyone who lives the tactical lifestyle can spot overtly tactical clothing like packs and bug outs a mile away. Other folks are perceptive enough to clue in on them as well. Leave the shoot me first clothing for the expos and classes unless that is somehow the baseline for where you are. Choose concealed carry-friendly clothing that can blend in whether you're in the bush or in the city. Wear an expensive-looking watch or jewelry in some areas, and you might as well walk around with $100 bills hanging out of your pockets. Same goes for expensive electronics and camera gear. So do not advertise. Humans are social animals. There's safety in numbers and a strong us-versus-them instinct. Use this to your advantage and group up with certain people. Single individuals are viewed as easy targets for groups of two or more. Immodest clothing attracts attention. Have clothing and accessories that you can wear anywhere and adapt to a wide range of circumstances. Acquire clothing that blends with the area you're in through like purchase or barter. Theft generally creates potential liability that you don't need. Imagine searches of the area you'll pass through while traveling. 
I use a multi-binder clip to organize money, conceal it, and spread it across my person. I modify the binder clip handles for uses handcuff key. Flashing or fumbling with large wads of cash attracts attention. Know where you're going. Study your maps at night and plan your routes. Reading a map in public pegs you as an outsider. People take notice of openly displayed weapons. It may not be a big deal to many folks in rural western towns, but they still take notice. Understand that seeing a firearm sends some folks into a tizzy. Understand when to bare your teeth and claws and when to keep them hidden. Taking an enemy by surprise and being the first to act gives you a huge advantage in a fight. Be the one to use them and do not let others gain this advantage over you. In cooler weather, take advantage of this by carrying a concealed hammer revolver rigged in a pocket in addition to your sidearm. Having a pistol already in the hand gives you a decided advantage at the outset of an engagement should things go sideways. Some parts of my family owns a little property near Lake Powell, which is a reservoir on the Colorado River in northern Arizona and southern Utah. The red sandstone stone slot canyons of Lake Powell are a beautiful place for the family to get together. When the water level is high, Lake Powell has more coastline than the west coast of the USA. This makes plenty of room to get away. We came back into a town called Page after a couple weeks of camping up the lake in the, in the fall seasons. Our first pit stop was a gas station bathroom. In that restroom, a heavily intoxicated Native American gentleman took one look at us and asked if the leaves had started to turn yet up on the mountain. He must have figured that we'd come down off the Navajo Mountain a mountain sacred to the Native American tribes of the Four Corners region that dominates the landscape. That brief encounter taught me a lesson as a young survivalist many years ago. With one glance, it was obvious to the guy that we had been camping for a while, even though he could barely keep from falling to the floor. The human face is so hardwired into us that it's easy to spot someone who has come in from the bush with a glance, even when you're falling down drunk. I apply this fact to survival scenarios, specifically to blending in while transitioning from the bush to built up areas. This could happen in get home scenarios, bug out scenarios, escape and evasion scenarios, or returning from operations in the field. There are two important points survivalists should take away. The first point is proper hygiene when camping or in the field. When Native Americans encountered whites, their initial observation were that they had poor hygiene. Europeans remarked on how splendid Native Americans looked. This was because the wilderness was home to Native Americans. Europeans may have walked their own cities well-kept, but North America was a wilderness beyond the end of the Europeans' logistic train and full of hardship. Thus, they let appearances slide and relaxed Western standards of grooming while in the, in the wilderness. As my field craft improved, I became to view relaxed wilderness grooming standards as the hallmark of someone who is either a tenderfoot or lazy. Whether you travel in the world, resident cultures have developed regimens of hygiene that works for their environments. 
Being in the wilderness is no excuse to fail to maintain standards of grooming and hygiene. In fact, the survivalist cannot keep warm unless both body and clothes are clean. Soiled clothing loses its insulative properties. Sweaty skin is cold and clammy. Staying warm and healthy are both priorities in survival situations. You are just as likely to contract Giardia from not washing your hands before meals as from drinking contaminated water. In get-home scenarios, it's often necessary to transition from wilderness to rural, suburban, or urban terrain. Blending in wilderness terrain involves counter-tracking skills and camouflage or fitting into the baseline of human, human traffic in the area. In built areas, it means blending with the respective rural, suburban, or urban baseline. It, it is easy to spot someone who has just walked out of the bush, and understanding this makes it possible to prepare. A small hygiene kit goes a long way enabling the survivalist to blend. It can conceal the fact that he just walked out of the bush. Blending with the baseline may require a change of clothing or even the concealment of ethnicity, religious beliefs, or political affiliations. This depends upon what lines society has fractured as well as the dominant local groups between you and home. When necessary, perform recon before approaching transition points. Use your optics to learn what you can without revealing your presence. A monocular is useful on the trail to differentiate between people you know and those you do not. Scan the waistline, hands, and shoulders for weapons before others are able to do likewise. I incorporated a laminate glass signal mirroring in my everyday carry. I made a swing out felt-lined leather case to protect my mirror. It doesn't take up much room as a bulky padded nylon case, but still affords its degree of protection. I use it to discreetly improve my situational awareness, to negotiate corners without exposing myself to direct fire, signaling, self-treatment, and hygiene. You need to be able to see what should be fixed in order to blend. Blending in and making miles can be easier if you are not carrying a giant backpack. If you drive long distances in cold weather and carry a large pack, consider caching anything that is not necessary before you set out on foot. So keep the following things in mind to blend into your surroundings. Avoid eye contact. Do not flash your money. Choose clothing that you can wear anywhere. Avoid risque, flashy, unique, or bright colored clothing. Wear the same things that the others are. Do not carry openly unless everyone else is. Group up with people you know. A monocular is useful to learn about others from a distance and prepare for transitions from wilderness to rural, suburban, and rural areas, then back. Practice good hygiene in the field. This ends the broadcast for me tonight. Thank you for joining me around my campfire tonight, and it is my hope that you are gleaning some valuable information from these shows. Next week, next Thursday night, my special guest, I will be entering, interviewing Craig Sawyer, Craig Sawman Sawyer of Vets for Child Rescue. It's going to be an epic, epic interview, and I look forward to talking to Craig again. Remember to train hard and train smart to survive, thrive, and stay alive. This is Kate, signing off until next time.